When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One, and we are recording with the great Roger Williams wearing a wonderful TPC apparel shirt. And Roger is the author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which you can get on the Lulu. I always butcher that. Lulu, but that's where you get more money instead of Jeff Bezos. It's the same amount, it's the same cost to you, the purchaser, but if it's on Amazon, more money goes to Bezos so he can become a uh, transcendent man that lives for thousands of years and creates an empire throughout the galaxy. Or if you buy it on Lulu, you get a couple bucks, go to Roger. Roger's not trying to take <laughs> over the galaxy, not to my knowledge. Roger, what's going on, my man? Uh, at, well, it's been it's wild. Been yeah. And and it's actually, if uh, you hadn't bailed on me last week, I probably would have bailed on you because I was sick. Uh, oh, it works out well. So, yeah, I mean, I had uh, the stomach thing and visiting the porcelain God and all, although I did manage to uh, meet my dad and see Dr. Strange, Hell yeah. which, was, which was fun. If you're into the MCU movies, it's one of the better ones. Uh, but uh, yeah, I threw up in the morning and threw up in the evening and didn't sleep for Saturday or Sunday night and called in sick Monday. And uh, yeah, and uh, and I've been on call all weekend because we got six guys at a chemical plant in Wagaman putting in a retrofit to a railroad track scale. And they need me to be available for certain little bits and pieces of informational help. For, was at the- for what? Uh, they are replacing a 30 year old in motion railroad scale that weighs choo-choo trains as they pass over without stopping. Oh, Jesus. And so they're retrofitting the undercarriage stuff under the actual rails and stuff. And that requires replacing the controller electronics, which requires changing the interface between that and their accounting system which they were very insistent has to work tomorrow morning or all hell will break loose. Um, you know, as much as I get stressed out about this podcast at times, <laughs> it's conversations like this that make me realize, thank God my job is I don't have to interact with the real world because that just sounds too, sounds too real. Oh, this is like a half million dollar job. Yeah. Fuck that. And it's, you know, and, 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 the, and it had to be, it started on Friday afternoon. It has to be finished tomorrow morning or heads of the world. And we warned them to not do this over the weekend, but they decided to try doing it over the weekend anyway, because re- reasons and, oh my God. Whose head, whose head would roll though? I mean, is it your head? No, no, definitely not mine. Well, I, got, then, I got my shit squared away. They weren't, then you're not <laughs> concerned about whose head will roll. Like, I'm very sorry you guys have put yourself in a situation it's, where heads will roll. It, it Actually, it would be somebody, uh, somebody at the chemical plant. But, you know, you're talking about a multinational corporation, and basically nobody wanted to make the decision to say we won't be able to weigh real, rail cars for three days, which basically means they have to shut the plant down. So you're just kind of like a random crowd member during the French Revolution. You're like, hey, heads yeah. are rolling. I'm, I'm, I'm like the guy that's 
delivering pamphlets or something. Yeah, you're not you're not there. You're not in Versailles. You're no. not storming the Bastille. You're just um, a baker. You're a baker. You're like, hey, heads are rolling, but I yeah. am just I'm producing baguettes. No, I had I had a critical role because nobody else could have made this the the new console that controls the new in motion scale does not put out the same data as the old console that used to control the old in motion scale. And they have a computer program that expects the old consoles data. And I masochistically volunteered to take the new consoles data into a microcontroller and massage it and ship it out so that the new, the old computer would recognize it. And when the, when we first tried to do that Friday afternoon, it didn't work. Uh, but uh, I had my shit together and it, I was out there about four hours Friday afternoon, but I got my shit working, but then there's some other stuff and uh, the factory is not available because they're not open on the weekend. We warned our customer that if we needed factory help, the factory is not open on the weekend. Uh, but uh, you know, so I had to give them some help with some other stuff that's unrelated to me, but, I just happen to know some things, you know, like go buy the books or Roger doesn't have to deal with this <laughs> bullshit. That's the takeaway. That's I know. The ta- it's like, I've that's been the takeaway this, folks. I've been doing this for almost 40 years. This is actually, this has been one long infomercial. <laughs> go to Lulu and buy the book. All right. All right. Didn't work well enough when I physically threatened people. When I, when I, when, when I said Dale was going to kill you, it's so now we got to hit you with, with the train infomercial. We have focus group this ran it through a team of psychologists and we found this was the best attack. Go buy the book. And with that, Roger, let's jump into a reading because we have not done a reading for, we have not done a reading in like forever. Yeah. Yeah. Not, Not since I think before the war. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And of course, the war was a thing. And of course, there's a few other things to talk about now, but we haven't done the curators. Let's do a reading. We haven't done a reading in a while. It's, you know, Uh, enough of it's it'll be there next week. We can talk about crimes and potential nuclear Armageddon. Uh, yeah. And uh, now, as you may recall, or maybe not, because it's been so long in our last reading, we left our heroes, Jay and Emma, uh, had just witnessed the birth of a world mm-hmm. where they saw the final engineered collision, the creation of what the curators themselves just hope will be a moon because it's not an exact science even for them after 7 billion years. And the humans have also volunteered to spread the knowledge of how to make better fold drives throughout the galaxy, which is where we will start this reading. And we will finish this reading with something you probably never thought that you would hear from me, a big game hunter who is going to be one of the good guys. All right. <laughs> Enlighten me. Okay. Let me move my windows around here. We put you there and we put this here so that I'm looking at the camera. And Okay. This will be your curators part 12. And as I originally published it on Reddit, uh, this was book two parts 13 through 18. And so this is book two part 13. 
There are a little over 3 million registered capital fold ships in the Milky Way galaxy. Of these, about one in five run a regular route called an orbit, visiting the same worlds in a sequence that regularly brings them home to start over. Orbits might take a ship to as few as five or six worlds or as to as many as 50, the average being around 30. We carefully selected about 40,000 of these carriers to be our final delivery assistants, breaking down the half dozen pallets they would need to be supplied with to deliver one set of volumes to each world they visited, a gift that was easily accommodated by the usual orbital transports. These ships would visit nearly every world in the galaxy, and a mop-up direct mission concluding our project would take care of the stragglers. If we had to supply those 40,000 carriers ourselves, it would have taken us nearly a millennium. A fraction of the regular carriers maintain scheduled orbits so that they can reliably share rendezvous with a few other ships as they travel. This allows for heavy cargo to be transferred in space without deorbiting and waiting for the other ship to arrive. This, of course, is exactly the service we needed, and we recruited about 10,000 of these second-tier helpers which would be supplied with enough books for their own orbital destinations, as well as for all of those other ships they planned to meet. These ships would each take 10 or 20 or 30 pallets. Everything was pre-labeled as to which ship was to pass on which other and which final world each volume was addressed to. If we had directly supplied these second-tier helpers, the project would still have taken between one and two centuries, longer than we wished. So we also recruited about 2,000 first-tier helpers who would rendezvous with the second-tier helpers. They would take on as many as 150 pallets. This would require 10 to 20,000 square meters of cargo floor space. While that might sound like a large imposition, it really isn't for a capital fold ship. Our partners were all enthusiastic and were training staff to execute the transfers and deliveries, even as we loaded the Reliant. Supplying all of the first-tier helpers would take about 30 years, but we would also be running three ships in tandem so that it would only take 10. The Alexei Leonov was already waiting in orbit to take Reliance place for loading after we cleared the staging area. These missions would be absolutely unique in both human and galactic history. Together, the three ships would travel within 500 light years of every point in the galaxy where inhabitable worlds might be found. They would be away from Earth for the full 10-year mission, shattering the records for both longest and most distant away mission ever conducted. They would be stuffed with not only books, but with recording devices operated by some of humanity's best scientists. The missions would also each take about a 1,000 tourists hungry for the opportunity to literally go where no human had ever gone before. Most of these people would not stay out the whole 10 years, as more modest passenger-class fold ships would regularly commute between the book carriers and the human colonies, allowing passengers to come and go. One goal of these missions, other than book delivery, was to create a human index of the galaxy, which would actually list every star, not just the curated ones, in the parts of the galaxy where it was safe to fly. Accordingly, we would be making short stops in interstellar space between our destinations in order to take quick scans to fill in as many gaps as possible. For the benefit of both the scientists and the tourists, we also had side trips scheduled to a few places that wouldn't harbor life, but which were of intense interest for other reasons. Emma and I joined the expedition in our personas as the king and queen, and our departure was choreographed so that we could watch the Leonov descending to take our place. Within a day, we made orbit at CI-1146020 to wait for their ship, 1146020 Mark V, 
which took on 138 pallets to bring the Promethean drive-making methods to 692 other worlds. Emma and I personally delivered a copy to the surface of CI-114602R itself, where we were greeted with applause and treated to a lavish party. Instead of continuing with Reliant, Emma and I jumped ship to follow the five, as its crew called it. The pallets had been carefully staged so that the 27 meant for tier two helper 526900 mark eight were on the outside of the storage area. The pallets were equipped with remotely controlled gravity plating skids and transferred from one enormous airlock to another in vacuum. They also transferred quite a bit of other cargo. This was a function we had never actually seen before since we had our own methods. It was shocking to realize that we were ignorant of such basic functions of gap standard galactic commerce, we really did tend to stay in our own little bubble of civilization. Once again, we jumped ship to follow the eight. We were assured that this was a very common form of shorthand affectation for the crews of old ships, most of whom lived aboard for years at a time and came to consider the ship more of a home than their home world. The eight made four stops where we broke the pallets labeled for that purpose and delivered volumes to the surface. Then we stayed in orbit at CI 100 4917 for nearly a week waiting for 104917 Mark II to complete its orbit. While we waited, we delivered their instruction volume to the eager staff of an already built fold shop facility. As we watched, about 20 of them took seats at a long table, and the first volume was separated at one end. The pages were passed down the line to be read by each individual, and then at the far end of the table, they were reassembled. This reading line was a suggestion that had been compact enough to make it over the microfold, and we were assured that it was the most efficient way to familiarize the most individuals with the overall content of the manuals in the shortest possible time. The readers would obviously not retain enough of the details to be able to start work, but they would have some idea where to go when they did need that detailed knowledge as they built their shop. The readers took notes and discussed each page with their neighbors and passed the pages along at the sound of a chime, which allowed generous time to read and discuss each page. This time, when the 104917 Mark II arrived, we only transferred four pallets, one of which was only half full, with a volume for each of the 27 worlds it would visit before returning home. And wanting to see how the process played out to the end, we again jumped ship. This time, we were surprised to find that the crew did not call their ship the two. Instead, they called it eyes, which we eventually figured out was a slang term for the result of a two in an ancient and popular gambling game that involved flipping ceremonial coins. Since there were no more bulk transfers, we stayed with the eyes for its entire orbit, personally delivering each volume. While we were aware of the range of body styles among curated species, it was a new thing to see so many of them in their native worlds in such a short time. Most of them thrived only in a relatively small part of their world for which they were adapted. Some of them had specialized protective gear for exploring more extreme environments, but none of them lived in such, environmentally, uh, such environments permanently or even for long periods the way that humans do. Some, like our hosts, had been making preparations to try making a full drive before we arrived. Others thanked us and showed us how they would put our gift in secure storage until they could recruit guides who would help them use it more effectively. We came to understand that in these early days, the most valuable product of a full drive shop wasn't going to be a full drive. It was going to be the trained personnel who could go on to other worlds and help them spin up an operation quickly without making mistakes or missteps. 
It would take millennia for the Promethean methods to achieve full penetration. Three million plus existing capital fold ships were effectively obsolete, and Promethean technology would make possible new classes of smaller and more numerous long-range craft that could land on any world. It would no longer be necessary to transfer cargo and vacuum by remote control, and landing would make direct rendezvous unnecessary for large-scale commerce. Entirely new forms of commerce would become practical. All over the galaxy, there was an electric feeling of change in the air, a larger change than the galaxy had seen in aeons. And while we had some help from the Prometheans, it was mostly humans who had done this. The Prometheans would not have developed their more accessible drive if we hadn't taught them the secrets of our more difficult-to-build version, and they didn't have the means to publish what they had learned for the benefit of the entire galaxy. After we returned to CI-104917, we went for a quiet walk on the outskirts of their capital city, and when nobody was looking, folded home to Tulingua, state of Texas, Earth. As we poured celebratory shots of some alien liquor our curator friend had left for us, Emma sighed. You know, she said as we drink, clinked our shot glasses, I keep thinking of that operation to make a moon. I can't help wondering what happens next. I know we are supposed to actually live long enough now to think of such projects on that scale, but somehow it doesn't seem real. I know, I said, we've done something here that everyone thinks is extraordinary, and then you compare it to that, and it's like, really? I want to see what happens next, Eva declared. I want to see the whole process. They might not have finished the job for whatever reason, but for practical purposes, the curators still created us. They created our world, our biosphere, our ancestors, and the whole environment that in turn created us. I want to see how and why they did it. Well, you know who we have to ask about that, I said, and we nodded in agreement. A few moments later, our friend, the human form curator, popped into existence right in front of us. I remembered not to bother hiding this time, he said with a grin, and I brought more refreshments. I hope the untranslatable was to your liking. It's fine, Emma said, and then she stated her business. The curator nodded. I had a feeling it might have that effect on you, so I've already made some inquiries, he said. The kind of work that you are now interested in isn't as spectacular, and it's ongoing. So fewer of us want to see it, and it's easier to get a guided tour. Let me finish making some arrangements. Not all of us are pleased with what you're now doing, so we have to be a little careful about who to approach. Book two, part 14. We found ourselves in the tunnels of another hollowed out asteroid, but this one was a bit larger and with a larger crew than the geoengineering station. This time, the apparent leader had four legs and a chitinous exoskeleton reminiscent in some ways of the civilians, but lacking their ability to change color. It was a bright yellow over all of its body, except for the pitch black eyes and the dark green mark of the curators on its back. Another asteroid, Emma asked, after we made introductions. How many of these things do you have? You should properly ask how many we have since you have joined us. The answer is six. This station is responsible for all maintenance between the introduction of life and the curation of multicellular life forms. We deliberately trigger several important events if they do not occur naturally, and we also intervene sometimes when things take a bad turn. Simple ecosystems 
systems are inherently perilous, responding poorly to external insults or feedback overshoot. How long do you stay at each world? Our mission is very different from that of the engineers you recently met. Congratulations on witnessing the final engineered collision, by the way. Once they identify a promising system, they stick with it for tens of thousands of years, because once you start bringing stuff around in a forming inner solar system, it's not unusual to need adjustments often. They will have thousands of systems on survey rotation when they're not engineering, mostly in easily identified stellar nurseries. And when they pick a candidate system for curation, it becomes their focus for some time. Our mission is a bit different. Once the engineers turn a world over to us, we add it to our private index. We are curating 9.3 million worlds at this time, but few of them are visited more than once every few million years. The closer a world gets to hosting a critical path species, the more often it requires attention. At these stages where we are now, anything involves very long timescales, so we are very able to attend to many worlds. It would be unusual for us to prolong a visit to any individual world for more than a few weeks. Since we have many to choose from, we have put together a little tour for you that should give you an idea of our attention progresses as the world develops in these early aeons. We were assigned quarters and told that our tour would last a couple of months. The crew was again a wild mix of species, and this time several times more numerous than the crew of the engineering station. Dealing with living things, even simple ones, requires us to maintain laboratories and skill sets of considerable complexity, the leader said. Arranging your tour was easy because our usual pattern is to try to mix things up so that everybody has a job to do with some regularity. Food was served in a common hall, but customized for the many individual species who were present. A similar arrangement prevails on the capital fold ships. The quality and attention to preparation detail were superb. Most of us live a very long time aboard the station, our leader said when we mentioned this. Our quality of life is an important consideration. When were the asteroid stations built, I asked. We don't know for certain. They were at least 5 billion years old, but we have no reliable records from those early aeons. We have studied the matter and concluded that all of the host asteroids were formed in the same solar nebula about 9 billion years ago. It would seem sensible to conclude that that was the home system of the ancestors, but we have no proof of that. The ancestors are the original curators who evolved naturally? Exactly. I forget that you are so new to all of this. I wonder why they used asteroids, Emma said. Nobody uses asteroids. Our theory is the ancestors developed advanced fold technology before they developed nanites. If you ask your implants, I'm sending you a link, you will find you have the skill of fold nibble excavation. This makes it very easy to turn a solid ball of rock or metal into a warren of tunnels and rooms. Sure enough, Emma and I both found ourselves remembering how to execute this technique, which used precisely formed fold apertures to remove slabs of rock 10 to 15 centimeters thick from the end of a tunnel in progress. This technique was not accessible to the curated species because they did not have the precision fold technology enjoyed by the curators, but it suggested that familiar modern nanite tech capable of cheaply building large ships was developed by the ancestors sometime later than their advanced fold tech. Our first stop was a world that had experienced its own final engineered collision only about 50 million years previously. The solar system was still in the throes of what our scientists would call the late heavy bombardment, and both the world and its moon were pocked with lava-filled craters from recent impacts. 
There's really nothing for us to do here, our host explained, but we check in to see how it's progressing. We will use what we learn here to schedule our next visit. Sometimes if things are going badly, we might also refer such a world back to the engineers. Sometimes we just learn that it isn't going to work out and cancel it from our index. None of this is an exact science, even for us. After a few hours, the head of the planetary astronomy crew made a report. Outer planet orbit inflation is a bit ahead of what engineers predicted, but not really a problem. Density of impacting debris is decreasing on schedule. The moon's orbit is looking good. Water cover is behind schedule, but there's plenty of material left for delivery in the bombardment. Overall, we think 30 million years is a good return date. We should be able to get a better idea what the final ocean volume will be by then. The mission leader entered that into a log and said, scheduled then. That's it? There's much else we can do at this stage. This world is still receiving extinction-level impacts several times a year, and it needs those impactors to deliver water and organic material, which was driven off during the even more violent early days. We mainly came to make sure that there were no unfortunate mishaps developing. Sometimes we find there won't be enough water, or that the relationship between the moon's orbit and the planet's rotation is unpromising. Sometimes the outer system gives us an unfortunate surprise. About 10% of the worlds the engineers bring to this point turn out to be unsuitable, and we just either get the engineers to try to fix them, or if that's not possible, we give up and move on. While the station had far better fold drives than even those humans had built, we were folding into systems that hadn't been visited for millions of years. So we moved in cautiously, taking several survey days on the relative safety of the outer system before folding in toward the candidate world. Our next target was further along, and while it was barren, it glistened in places with full ocean basins and had no large open pits of lava. The moon already strongly resembled Earth's Luna. This world received its moon 300 million years ago, the leader told us. Its atmosphere was mostly water, sulfur dioxide, and carbon dioxide. Tidal forces have slowed the rotation and pulled the moon upward into orbit, which makes the tides much less violent. Our note shows that we had hoped life would have emerged naturally by now. It does about 20% of the time. The atmospheric analysis makes it pretty certain that this hasn't happened, so you will get to see a seeding operation here. Since the atmosphere was still quite toxic, even to curators, the life science crew conducted their survey in single personal flyers. These were small enough that a curator's implant could fold them a reasonable distance or generate a supergravity propulsion field sufficient for maneuvering. The scientists spent several days surveying the world and several more deciding on a fertilization strategy. Then cryogenic storage containers in the heart of the station were opened and carefully selected microorganisms stored within culture to generate enough seed pods to give the operation a good chance of success. Finally, thousands of those pods were delivered to carefully selected surface sites, and the original samples were restored from the cultures and returned to storage. We should return within a thousand years at the latest, the life science leader said, and the station leader entered this into their record system. By then, it would be an obvious whether they have taken hold, and if they haven't, we will have to determine why and whether to try again. The next world we visited had been seeded about 40 million years ago. In this case, we are looking for signs of oxygen synthesis, the life science leader told us. 
Our ground crews are sampling atmospheric oxygen and also using spectroscopic samplers to look for mineral formations, which might be acting as oxygen sinks. If we don't find signs of oxygenation, we will introduce cyanobacteria ourselves. If we do, we will look for the culprits to see if they are suitable for our purposes. If there's not much free oxygen, why not just go ahead and introduce your own cyanobacteria anyway? At every stage, our method is to give chance some time to work before we take action. The ancestors were clear that we should hope for evolution to surprise us before we impose our own order. Emma and I looked at one another. I guess chance does happen sometimes, Emma said. More often than it would suit some of us, the scientist said, and he went on about his business. After a week and a half of sample collection, it was determined that there were oxygen-producing organisms at work, but they weren't nearly aggressive enough to transform the world's atmosphere by a reasonable time. Accordingly, our host set about another seeding operation overseen by a different group of scientists. Apparently, even the curators have specialties. Our next destination was at this point about 60 million years ago. Our records indicate that suitable bacteria had evolved on their own and were on their way to exhausting the natural mineral oxygen sinks. So on our last visit, we took no action. When we folded into the system, we found the world cloudless and brilliant white. Ice ball, I said. Yes, a frequent result of oxygenation is that it oxidizes methane, a powerful greenhouse gas, into carbon dioxide, a less potent one, and the temperature drops. Life almost always survives this, but we have to wait for geological processes to introduce more carbon dioxide to get the temperature back up. You couldn't fix this in a shorter time? Not really. The environment isn't suitable for oxygen using life to start making carbon dioxide. And even if it was, we really need more carbon on the surface, which we can get most easily by waiting for volcanoes to deliver it. Another notation was entered into the records and we departed. It was a little strange after Earth's unpleasant recent history with too much carbon in its atmosphere to see how stark a problem too little could also be. The life scientists explained to us that at every level, from the single cell to an individual being such as ourselves to the ecosystem of a world, life was a series of interlocking equilibria that had to be maintained. Maintaining those equilibria was what life did, and did excellently, but enough stress could cause those equilibria to collapse with dire consequences. After we left the ice ball world, the leader didn't give us any hints as to what to expect next. What we came upon in the next curated world after surveying its system from afar, it took our breath away. Along with the brown and gray of rock, it was also blue and green and the brilliant white of clouds. Let's survey it. Speaking of our world there. I say I thought I heard something. Yeah. A little thunder there. Uh, as flyers descended to the surface, the leader explained, this is a world which may be ready to pass in the next crew. We want to establish that it has a stable ecosystem maintaining an oxygen-rich atmosphere. The land will still mostly be barren, but there will be a lot of life in the water, especially the ocean shallows and freshwater inland to lakes and seas. This is one of our most complex tasks, and we will be here for about a month determining the diversity and extent of that life. If we discover multicellular organisms or determine that the environment is appropriate to support them, we will pass this world along to the next development crew. They surveyed tens of thousands of samples, mostly using DNA techniques to shift, sift for various gene sequences. 
Their computers are much more powerful than even human machines at analyzing this data to determine the mix and development level of life forms that had contributed to the bulk sample. At the final summary meeting, the crew leader announced that the, all the elements were in place for the world to develop its own multicellular life forms, but that the breakthrough hadn't quite happened yet. In keeping with their policy of giving chance a chance, they decided to return in 50 million years to see if anything developed spontaneously before handing it over to be seeded with multicellular life. Our tour was over and we folded directly back to Terlingua where we found Quentin and the human form curator drinking scotch and playing pool in our underground lair. Book two, part 15. A pool table? Really? Emma said as Quentin took a shot sinking his ball. The barbecue joint is under new management, and they offered it to the first patron who could remove it for them, Quentin said as he lined up another shot. And how did you haul it off? It's not like you have a pickup. Quentin looked at the curator, and Emma and I looked at him. It's a bit large, but the range was only 2,300 meters, so well within the capability of my implant, he said. You used the most advanced full technology in the galaxy to boost a pool table? It did give us an advantage over the gentlemen who were planning to return with pickup trucks, and Quentin was kind enough to show me the game. So you're a pool sharp, too, Emma asked Quentin. Once upon a time, he said with a shrug. The scotch turned out to be royal salute, and the curator poured us shots. So who's winning, Emma asked. Quentin is, the curator said. At that, Emma and I both raised our eyebrows. You have a curator implant, and Quentin is beating you at a simple match of physical skill? Yes, it is proving an interesting lesson, well worth the diversion of the table. The simplest strategy is easily modeled, but it is not a winning strategy. Quentin has proven able to use spin to make use of the ball, to make the ball travel curved paths and to travel collisions, which are far too chaotic to accurately model often enough to exploit them successfully. While I can control what the tip of the cue stick does far more repeatedly and accurately than he can, my implant doesn't have a sufficiently accurate physical model of that aspect of the game to use that control. As if on cue, Quentin took a shot that sent the cue ball curving around one of the curator's balls that should have been in the way to knock another of his own into a side pocket. Well, if his control is less accurate than yours, how is he smoking you at the game? I'm still trying to figure that out, the curator said. I'm willing to take risks, Quentin said as he made another shot. And I dispute his opinion of my control. I'm not analyzing the game as a physical system, but I spent a lot of years doing this and I have a lot of muscle memory. I may not know exactly what will happen when I let it fly. I notice Mr. C here always does, but it works often enough that I get a lot more opportunities than he does. You're too conservative, I said to the curator. Sending projects to take aeons to make one a bit, a bit conservative, the curator admitted. Yet it seemed like the opposite of that on our tour, Emma said. At each step, they understood that what they had done or were about to do might not work out. They said that about 10% of the final engineered collisions even failed to produce a suitable world. Now that's a game of pool, Quentin said, as he knocked in the eight ball winning the game. There are parallels, the curator said pensively. We have long established formulae for how much effort to put into each stage of the process. 
It's what you call a cost-benefit analysis, where we ask whether more effort and more time will increase the chances of success enough to justify that effort. At some point long ago, we determined that a 10% failure was acceptable for final engineered collisions because halving that rate, while possible, might increase our commitment to each world by a factor of 10. Planetary systems are so large and chaotic that the impossibility of precisely modeling everything is an obvious problem. It's rather surprising to see the same logic unfolding on the scale of the pool table. One of the lessons of our technological adolescence has been that that logic unfolds almost everywhere, Emma said. It's why we were able to remake our world with satellite communications and reach its moon with impossibly primitive rocket technology, even though those rockets had a bad habit of exploding now and then. And our full drive, I mentioned. They were only pretty sure it wouldn't fold the nearest planet into the sun. Which is why on our first test, we made sure the nearest planet would be Mars instead of Earth. Losing Mars would have sucked, but the prize, if we succeeded, was interstellar travel. We took the shot which you were only able to take because of your spectacularly primitive rockets, the curator said. And it didn't hurt that the civilians picked up the cue ball, Quentin added. But we didn't know that would happen, Emma said. We made the call that the small chance of losing Mars was worth the nearly certain opportunity of gaining the galaxy. It's a decision I participated in, and I would do it again today. We curators aren't so bold, the curator said. You have two more asteroid station tours arranged, one by the crew who guide worlds from multicellular life to what on your world you have called the Cambrian explosion, and another by the crew who gets those worlds ready for a critical path species to emerge. As we get closer to the critical path, you will see my people become less willing to diverge from practices which have been proven to work in the past because they put more effort in, which they don't want to see wasted. Won't we get to see how the critical path species are curated? You will, but that's done very differently. It doesn't require large crews or hardware, so our agents tend to just fold in with our implants, carrying such small artifacts as we might need. Once in a while, we need an amplifier belt. You'll meet those agents too, and you'll find that they are very conservative. I would know because I am, of course, one of them. That thing about not wanting to lose your effort to date, in gambling, we call that the sunk cost fallacy, Quentin said. It sounds like you aren't objectively evaluating the odds anymore. If you were, you would have either seen something like humans ages ago, or we would never have emerged. You may be right, the curator said. As life becomes more complicated, it becomes ever harder to calculate the probable outcome of an action. It may be that we are doing what you do when you hit the cue ball, relying more on our memory of what has worked in the past than on a complete analysis of what is possible. This is worth some serious research on our part, because if it is true, then we have been falling short of our mandate to give chance a chance for a very long time. Are either of you novices at this game? The curator asked of Emma and me. I am curious as to how your human tendencies would affect the outcome with neither of us having Quentin's muscle memory and both of us having an implant. I'm no sharp, but I have too many weekends in the service where there wasn't much else to do, Emma said. I've never picked up a cue, I said. Medical school doesn't provide a lot of time for recreation. Quentin gave me the same brief pointers he had given the curator. I didn't dominate the table the way Quentin could, but I won six out of seven games as we killed a bottle of Royal Salute. Book two, part 16.
The curation of early multicellular life turned out to lack drama. Although great changes were occurring as we visited more and more developed worlds, those changes were mostly visible only through the lens of a microscope or the output of a gene sequencer. All of the worlds we visited had blue skies and seas with blue-green shallows and land masses that were mostly still sterile brown and gray. No dramatic interventions were contemplated, and none of the worlds were expected to fail. If life did not develop appropriately by a certain point in the host star's evolution, it would be kicked by seeding it with viruses or entirely new organisms as appropriate. The evolution of the host star is what drives us, the team leader explained. It takes enormous amount of time for the kind of changes you want to see happen by chance, but as we want the star also burning its nuclear fuel, becoming hotter and nearer to the more that will make it a red giant. The habitable zone moves out as the star gets hotter, and generally a world that is near the outside of the habitable zone when we form its moon will be inside the zone and uninhabitable long before the nova. We try to make sure life becomes complex enough in time to enjoy some aeons of that complexity before it is annihilated. It takes us a detection of small miracles for organisms that start out as loose confederations of single-celled organisms to develop the strategies that make it possible for them to create specialized organs, isolate the interior of their body from the environment, and maintain that interior environment as they haul themselves out of the sea and colonize the continents. We watched three seeding operations, all of which proceeded similarly, although they involved very different biochemical agents and were run by different specialist groups. The last world we visited had large areas of green on its continents, but these turned out to be forests of giant fungi, which were devoid of animal life, and the atmosphere was nearly 30% oxygen. Usually the oxygen would spur development of animal life to make use of it, but for some reason that hasn't happened here. We will have to give it a kick or this ecosystem will burn itself out. If we can use viruses to give existing organisms extra capabilities, which can be enhanced by natural selection, but in a case like this, we may have to resort to introducing entire families of library organisms to mitigate the developing crisis. Life manages to do amazing things on its own, but it also manages to paint itself into corners with depressing frequency. At some point, one of the scientists told us that their record showed that world CI 1742660, known to its inhabitants as Earth, had not developed its Cambrian explosion spontaneously. It had been seeded to give advanced life a chance to develop before the sun made it uninhabitable, a transition they expected in about a billion Earth years. With the aging cure, it was not out of the question that Emma and I could live to see that happen. When we returned to the Earth, a giant fold ship, Alexei Leonov, had taken off with its load of full drive manuals, scientists, and tourists, and had been replaced at the loading terminal by the Rosinanti. That ship was scheduled to finish loading within eight months, at which point the publishing operation would be shuttered and the whole enterprise would consist of the three ships exploring the galaxy. Everything seemed to be going fine without us, so we folded over to the last curator asteroid station we would visit. Unlike the others, this one was not unique. There were three similar stations doing the same duty of curating worlds from the earliest land-based life toward a species capable of taking the critical path. We have about 12 million worlds in our index, this leader said. When we first get them from the last crew you visited, we visit them once every few million years. As life becomes more complex, it also becomes more likely to undergo more rapid change. And we find that if we visit less than every quarter million years or so, we miss important transitions. Those fellows often have to seed worlds because they simply can't develop. 
But once life reaches this point, it does nothing but develop. Our biggest problem is when it develops into a dead end that won't lead to a critical path. This time, there was no clean progression from simple to complex worlds. At this point, you can't look at the life forms of an ecosystem and tell how long it's been developing or how far along it is toward our goal for it, we were told. Forms ebb and flow in ways we still can't bottle predictably. We have had worlds transition from the critical path in as little as 30 million years after we took over their index, and some of those with no intervention at all on our part. We have had others that simply never developed despite repeated interventions to correct dead ends in which we eventually abandoned because their stars were becoming too old. What exactly do you mean by a dead end? Emma asked. Your own world provides a perfect example. CI1742660 developed a healthy ecosystem within a reasonable span after we got it, but then it spiraled into an arms race between ever larger predators and prey. We gave it nearly 100 million years, but it only ever got worse, and 65 million years ago, we corrected the situation. That was obviously the right course of action because you fellows developed as a result. Except someone didn't think we were worth developing later, I said. You have to talk to the critical path people about that. I would say that your presence here today proves they were wrong. Considering that you guys seeded the galaxy with life, the idea that you could be that wrong about something is a little terrifying, Emma said. The leader made a tinny clicking noise, which our implants identified as laughter. The universe is inherently chaotic, he said, and he looked thoughtful, and he said, I mean that in your technical sense, not your vernacular sense. The quality you call omniscience is simply impossible. There is no state of existence so advanced that one becomes incapable of misunderstanding a situation or making a mistake. We are proof of that, and we have only made a garden of one galaxy. We often wonder why the curators never expanded beyond the Milky Way. Our estimates of the natural rate of development of advanced life suggest to us that this galaxy now contains more advanced life than the rest of the universe. Why would we need more? It turned out that other than breaking up the log jams of dead-end evolution, this crew really didn't do much with the worlds under its watch except to turn them over to the critical path agents when something promising emerged. That doesn't happen very often, so we didn't get to see any examples. But we did get to see a world marked for a cleansing correction. Worlds where all the continental landmasses are connected are a problem, especially when all those landmasses are tropical in climate. I wanted to show you this world because it is very similar to yours when we intervened. They are both predator and prey animals massing over 100,000 kilograms. They are very highly specialized and unlikely to develop intelligence, and their presence makes life perilous for any other life forms that might show the kind of promise that we want. One way or another, they have to go. The monsters of this world strongly resemble dinosaurs, except that they had scales instead of feathers and beaks instead of jaws and teeth. Imagine a 40-foot-tall, 100,000-kilogram carnivorous parrot. Herbivores had appropriate defenses that made them impregnable to smaller predators, and even the trees were enormous to keep from being completely devoured by the giant herbivores. There were few niches where smaller animals could thrive and none stable enough to allow for critical path development. We're not going to make the correction now because we have to monitor it for a while while we do, but within a million years or so, we will return for one final survey and... Barring a miracle, we will throw a rock at them. How would you do it, I asked. The leader activated a display. We pick a suitable rock, usually a moonlet of gas giants, since those are easiest to find. The limit for the fold amplifier belts is about 20 kilometers diameter. 
we look for a suitable impact point on the target world. We want ocean shallows so that we can create a tsunami as well as sulfate minerals, if possible, to create toxic rain. Equatorial so that both the North and South hemispheres will be affected equally. We wait until the rock's existing orbital motion is aiming it at the right angle, and we fold it to within about a thousand kilometers of the target to give our delivering agent time to fold out before it strikes. One of our paleontologists once said that the Earth's KT impactor couldn't have landed in a worse possible place. I said, that wasn't by accident, was it? Of course not. Life is surprisingly resilient, and we need to be sure the reset is complete. Life at this stage always comes back, but we need to come back without the giant monsters dominating the ecosystem. Later in our quarters, Emma was pensive. Within a thousand kilometers, she said with a heavy sigh, it's not even sporting. It's an assassination. They're in the way, though, I said, and it's not our garden, really. Not everything is in the way, she said. To get rid of the monsters, they kill nearly everything, nearly every individual of every species, enough that a lot of the smaller species will have no surviving individuals either. Isn't that counterproductive? When we brought it up to the mission leader, he made a gesture our implants recognized as a shrug. We tend to a lot of worlds, he said. We don't have time to be more surgical about it. We've been doing this for way too many aeons. Look, the world we just visited, you're pretty sure it's going to need a reset, aren't you? Unfortunately, yes. When we carry it out, we'll also probably spend several months watching the outcome, which distracts us from the rest of our mission, but it has to be done. And you don't really want to wipe everything out, right? If you could do it surgically, what would the thresholds be? Well, we're mostly concerned with both predator and prey animals that mass more than 10,000 kilograms. Intelligent species with primitive weapons can deal with animals of that scale, as your own ancestors did, but they can't deal with animals that mass 100,000 kilograms. Would you mind if we humans took a stab at this problem for you? I think we might have a way to do that that leaves the smaller animals in the overall ecosystem much more intact. That would be an interesting experiment. I would certainly see no reason not to let you proceed with such a plan, since we could always go ahead with our method if necessary. What ex exactly would you be doing? Let's keep in touch, Emma said. I have to talk to some of our human friends. Book two, part 17. The Red Estate was not far from the new capital of Earth and the Australian Badlands. The man who liked to call himself the Red Prince had moved there from Montana when it became clear that his already considerable interests were at risk in the forming Russo-American concordance. He was one of the largest shareholders of the company that ended up making the first human fold drives, and he was still one of the richest individuals on Earth. We had been careful not to disrupt such fortunes as his when the governments were unified, because if they acted together, those few hundred people could have made life very difficult for us. Instead, we assured them that their interests would be safer than ever absent the squabbling of nation states, and they welcomed the changes that we brought. We didn't bother concealing our arrival. At his direction, we folded directly into a luxurious great room within his sprawling estate. My king and queen, he said with a modest and possibly a bit sarcastic bow, I must say I expected silver tights and royal headwear. We aren't here on official business of the Earth government. Thank you for agreeing to see us. 
I have several friends who strenuously advised me to do whatever you want. They had to hitchhike back to their homes from a very considerable distance, and only one of them knew Galactic Common beforehand. Sorry about that, Emma said. If we could have thought of another way to make our point without violence, we would have. We did try to make sure that they would all make it back. And they did, he said. Would you like a drink? To toast my friends on their return from the ordeal you set them. He poured us clean shots of Remy Martin XO, and we clinked tumblers. You did them a favor, he said after we tossed them back. Most people of my social class are soft, weak, and much more ignorant than they realize. The people you sent away, at least the ones I know personally, came back much stronger and wiser than they were before. Did they know you think that, Emma asked? Well, that was well timed. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Of course not, but I do take their advice to be square with you at full value. Because something like that might end. <laughs> at that, we all chuckled. We were hoping that you would let us see your collection, I said. He stiffened for a moment, then smiled. I would have thought that you would find that pursuit of mine off-putting, he said. Then I remember that the two of you killed two capital fold ships with full sentient crews. I am an amateur at your scale. We gritted our teeth and politely agreed. The repository is a few miles from here, underground, he said. It will take an hour or so to get there because there are no roads. If you can show us where it is, we can be there in seconds, Emma said. And she used her implant to project a translucent 3D map of the estate in the space between us. There was no indication of where this illusion came from because, of course, it came directly from the implant in this extra-dimensional fold of space. The Red Prince quickly picked up the hand gestures necessary and scrolled and magnified this image until the location of the repository hall was clear. Emma killed the projection and offered her hand. How does this work? He asked as he accepted her grip. A moment later, she said, like this, as we were now in the hall. My God, he said, that is unbelievable. I had a large hand in making the human fold drive, and I can't imagine how much more advanced your technology must be to do that so seamlessly. I had a larger hand in it than you did, and I was one of the theorists as well as a test pilot. You have no idea how much more advanced this technology is. We looked around. We were surrounded by animals frozen in motion by the best taxidermy artists ever to practice their craft. The Red Prince hadn't simply found them. He had funded them in researching the ever, ever better methods. We were facing a diorama of the African savanna. A lone male elephant raised its head to bellow as several female lions stalked a small group of gazelles with a male lion watching from the foreground. A pair of African crowned hawk eagles watched in the interest from some overhanging tree. A still photograph would have given no clue that the animals were all dead and posed. That elephant is old pal, the last of his species. It cost me a fortune to harvest him from the zoo in Johannesburg. The last female had disappeared over 15 years earlier, and I left him until it was clear that I risked losing him to the poachers in the increasingly unstable territory. The Chinese were shitty curators of the African continent. I paid more to have him preserved than I did building the manor house. How does it feel to kill the last member of a species, I asked, trying not to have an edge in my voice. It's curious, he said. There is a godlike sense of power, of course, a power that cannot be experienced in any other way. Yet there is also sadness because it's a power that can never be exercised again. Do you know how many times you've killed the last member of a species? Emma asked. 412, he replied without hesitation. 
but I have never been the cause of an extinction. When only one fertile example exists, I consider it a mercy to bring it here rather than let it rot after the poachers harvest whatever they want. It's hard to argue with that, Emma said evenly. We walked around. There were other equally elaborate and detailed dioramas of the Americas, Asia, even Australia and Europe. Some of the animals featured even continued to thrive in what was left of the natural world. Red told us that the plants were elaborate artificial reproductions. He had paid a similar fortune to different artists to make them as authentic as possible. And of course, there were many individual specimens mounted and displayed more conventionally. We have a proposal, I finally said. I could describe it, but it would be easier to show you. Would you mind taking a short space journey with us? As long as I get back in a reasonable time, he said, with a laugh that betrayed the first hint of nervousness that we could detect from him. We promise that if you have no interest in what we show you, you will be back here for dinner tonight. In that case, show away. Is the land above us a reasonable place to land a small craft that doesn't need a runway? Within five minutes, we were all aboard the implausible alibi, rising through the atmosphere. We introduced Quentin. You can just call me Red, the Red Prince responded. As the sky turned black, Red said, I find it surprising that you don't just grasp my hand again. Oh, their powers are limited when they have something other than their own bodies along, Quentin said. That's why they have their sidekick pilot in his glass ship. Quentin, didn't you once work for... I did a lot of things, Quentin snapped. I'd prefer not to think about them. My apologies, Red said, with what sounded like actual sincerity. Quentin brought us in low over the equatorial forest. Red and Emma and I took position on the top level of the glass ship, and Quentin tilted us so that the ground was easily visible. The gravity plating made it seem like he was tilting the planet instead of the ship. He brought us in over a group of giant herbivores that were standing nearly upright and using their long necks to devour the branches of giant needle branch trees with their beaks. Those animals must weigh hundreds of tons, the Red Prince said. Almost absently, Emma said, that near one mass is about 121,400 kilograms. Red gave her an astounded look. You can measure things, too? Oh, they can do lots of things, Quentin said. Let's find some predators. That took a little more effort because predators don't flock, but Emma and I had far better searching tools available to us than Quentin did via the ship, and we quietly forwarded in promising coordinates. We found a family of giant raptors feasting on a fresh kill and fending off a closing perimeter of smaller but more numerous claimants to the carrion. 97,200 kilograms, Emma said. That's the female. The male is 88,800 kilograms, and the juvenile is 31,400 kilograms. I'm impressed, Red said. What exactly am I doing here, though? Unlike the herbivores, the raptors noticed us, and the female came up to snap her beak at us. Quentin hovered just a bit beyond her range. It's quite possible she could destroy the ship, Quentin said helpfully. Jay and Emma can probably tell us the bite force. Not quite, Emma said. We're a bit big for her bite, but these aren't the largest carnivores on this world. What do you want from me, Red said. We need, we need them to be killed, all of them. You want me to make these creatures extinct? Quentin flew us back up into the blackness of space to overlook the world. They are already extinct. They just don't know it yet. The curators just surveyed this world, and they find it unpromising for their purposes. If these giants are still here in a few hundred thousand years when they come back, they will fix the problem the same way they fixed the same problem on Earth 65 million years ago. The curators caused the KT extinction? Yep. The Red Prince deflated a fraction of an inch. Such power, he sighed.
This galaxy is their garden, I said. They weed when they choose. And they want me to be their lawn man? We offer you the job. We thought you might find it an interesting challenge. I have hunted on the human colony worlds, he said wistfully, and there was nothing challenging there. That's because we chose the colonies to be as boring and uninteresting as possible. If we weren't there now, the curators would probably seed them with more promising life in a few tens or hundreds of millions of years. We are not here to make another colony. Part of our charge is that all of us will leave when the work is done. This is a world that shows promise that has been dead-ended by the reign of the giants. That reign will end. The only question is whether it will be done by throwing another space rock or by some more elegant process. So I would be a more elegant process than a meteor? If you don't kill everything else, we would think so. He looked almost wistfully back at the world. You have captured me, he said. I am incapable of resisting such an offer, as I'm sure you knew. I will clear this world of its giant vermin. I will do it efficiently with as little farm to the rest of the ecosystem as possible. And then we will leave. Is this what the curators want? Yes. I will need a base of operations and helpers and recruits. This project will make hunting interesting again. There are some islands the giants can't reach. Take your pick. There are no limits in the technology you are allowed to use. No limits? What about biological and chemical? Nothing you are capable of doing comes close to what the curators will do if you don't finish it first. Well, I think you said we could be back at my estate for dinner, and I have some 200-year-old wine that has been waiting for a good enough reason to be consumed. I notice we're at uh, 7.15 your time. Do we yeah. have time for one more? No, I got I, I to run. But I want, what I wanted to say was, um, for everybody listening that doesn't know, I, I, have to go, I have to go do something that's kind of non-negotiable. I did want to say I love that description of the KT impact, though. <laughs> like, wait, hold on. They said the KT couldn't have been it. Yeah. Shallow sea, tidal waves, so fear. That's, I was, as you're... As you were mentioning that, like the image came into my head, like, I don't know why, like off the coast of Great Britain. But then as you started to say it, I was like, God, that sounds like the KT. <laughs> and then you just went into the KT effect. But that, <laughs> God, that is just, it's so dark. These are some bad dudes. It's just dark. <laughs> like, it, they're, they're extinct. They just don't know it. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like if you ever read account or just the guys I've interviewed about when like the delta team fingers this person is like that's the, oh yeah that's the target it's like oh they just don't know it yet or drone operators mm -hmm. where it's like oh we're gonna have two loitering drones and they might loiter for 30 days just taking turns but when we see the guy's cell phone turn on he's done he just doesn't know it oh I, I did have that in the back of my mind when I wrote that. That's, that that so. gives me an uneasy feeling. <laughs> just, yeah, and then the line, it's not even sport, it's assassination. Yeah, it's not even the most dangerous game. It's it's running up with the revolver to the head. Yeah. Well, that was a dark reading. <laughs> or one a little a little more insidious than they normally do. Well, we haven't even gotten to the assassination attempt yet. Oh, Jesus, Roger. <laughs> All right. Well, I suppose that will be Sunday.
we'll yeah, resume. We'll, yeah, we'll need a little extra time because I have one more of my old episodes that I meant to be part of 12 before we get <laughs> to 13. So we'll have seven of my original episodes next time. We'll probably have more time next week. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Maybe for, then yeah. And then, you know, if we need something more uh, lighthearted, we'll talk about the war in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> or, the, or the Supreme Court thing. Oh, oh Jesus, Jesus Christ in heaven. Yeah. I had, I had a, I thought I had, I had a comment or a joke about that, but it just escaped me. It's a totally hilarious situation. I mean, the jokes write themselves, don't they? Yeah, the, that was so lovely. But uh, yeah, you. Uh, I, I think you will really like the uh, the next reading too. It gets into yet another. It's it's actually going to be one of the uh, most important inflection points in the history of the human race. Fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah, Roger Williams. Thank you so much. Go buy the go buy the book on Lulu. Or so help me God, Roger will <laughs> Roger will throw a KT impact in your front yard. Yeah, because because it makes a difference whether it's in your front door, front yard, or the neighbor two blocks away. It makes I mean, no just... difference. We're all going out <laughs> together, so just buy the goddamn book. <laughs> Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. We will resume on Sunday with our regularly scheduled readings. Thank you so much, Roger. I'll text you when it's up. <laughs>